Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. We're on our third episode today and this week we'll be examining the plight of the North's hard-pressed town halls. They've endured more than a decade of austerity cuts ever-increasing pressure to provide for the needs of an ageing population, 18 months of reduced income and increased costs due to the pandemic, and to top it all off, the latest rebranding in Whitehall means there is no longer even a government department with the words local government in it. So to get a sense of the picture across the north, we'll be checking in on local councils in the northwest, Yorkshire and the northeast. Myself and Westminster editor Dan O'Donoghue have been speaking to Alan Vincent, a senior Tory on Lancashire County Council, and Newcastle City Council leader Nick Forbes, who also leads the Labour Group on the Local Government Association. No, people have definitely noticed uh, the impact of cuts here, uh, and that's why we have 10 fewer libraries in Newcastle than we had 10 years ago. Uh, we have 14 fewer short start centres than we had 10 years ago. People have seen a real difference in terms of the council's daily response or lesser, less than daily response to local environmental concerns. No, no, I don't think they will have noticed. And, and I think certainly the we haven't cut much in by way of frontline services. We haven't had much in the way of staff reductions. Uh, we've done it really by working smarter uh, and by using digital technology where uh, we wouldn't have used that in the past. So it's been, a, it's been a smart way of working that's delivered most of the, the savings that we have managed to make. Uh, so I don't think people will have noticed that. And in Leeds, local democracy reporter Richard Beecham takes us through the impact cuts have had on local services in Yorkshire's biggest city. It's going to scrap its subsidy for PCSO officers. There's going to be an increase in the fees to use bowling greens, reductions in grants to arts organisations, the scrapping of the Christmas lights, the scrapping of screening England matches in Millennium Square. You now have to pay for a breeze card. And even the grass on public land is going to be cut less often. The list goes on and on and on. But I think it just shows how the cuts can affect everything from the big things to the little things. But before we get into that, let's reflect on this week's Tory conference in Manchester, where in a 44-minute speech, Boris Johnson vowed to unleash the unique spirit of the country against the backdrop of universal credit cuts and lorry driver shortages. We've got two great Northern journalists to discuss what we learned from the gathering up north. We've got Sebastian Payne, the Whitehall editor of the Financial Times, who's originally from Gateshead and has literally written the book on the Red Wall. Broken Heartlands, a journey through Labour's lost England, out now in all good bookshops, tells the stories of the areas in the North and Netherlands which turned Conservative in 2019. And it's great also to be joined by Rachel Wearmouth, originally from Crook in County Durham and a former reporter for the Chronicle and Journal in Newcastle, who is now a senior political correspondent at the Daily Mirror. So Rachel and Seb, it's so good to chat to you both. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So Seb, a lot of the talk ahead of Tory conference was about how the government needs to put some flesh on the bones of its levelling up agenda. I don't feel like we got a huge amount in the way of new policy in Boris Johnson's speech, but do you feel like we know a bit more now about what levelling up is and what it might mean for the northern towns that you visited in your book? Well, I think the thing about levelling up is it's a palpable thing. What the government is trying to say to these areas is we're going to make up for decades of underinvestment uh, and poorer jobs and skills opportunities by changing all manner of things. And the challenge with this slogan ever since it was invented, I think pretty much the day after Boris Johnson entered Downing Street after the 2019 election, is that they've not been clear on exactly what 
what that means. And both Neil O'Brien, who's the junior minister at the Department for Leveling Up, and Michael Goh, who's the Secretary of State there, at this year's conference, they set out four Bucket, shall we call them, to define what levelling up is. One is empowering local leaders and communities. That means more mayors and more devolution, which is something Mr Gove talked about in a fringe event I did with him. The second is growing the private sector and boosting living standards. So that is about trying to encourage more inward investment in these areas. The third is about spreading opportunity, improving public services. So that's pumping cash into various public services and looking at their outputs. And the fourth is restoring local pride. And that comes into all of the various, the Towns Fund, the Leveling Up Fund, all those sort of things. So when you put that together, you are starting to get a decent idea what it looks like. And on October the 27th, we will get the white paper about the time of the budget that will set out all the key economic and data metrics of what exactly Leveling Up has looked like. So gradually, we are getting there. I guess what came out of it for me was there's the longer term structural stuff that needs to happen to bridge regional inequalities and improve productivity and so forth. But then there's the shorter term stuff. The, 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 I know Rachel Wolf, who wrote the 2019 Tory manifesto, is talking about hanging baskets and sort of that feeling of local pride in in towns, which uh, I think is part of the what we now know to be the levelling up agenda. But obviously, there's a electoral calculation, isn't there, as well, that those sort of shorter term things can be done before the next election and will potentially give the Conservatives, if they succeed in doing it, the licence to continue with the longer stuff that needs to happen for the economy. I think that's right. It's essentially they're trying to do things in the short term to gain electoral permission for the longer term. And of course, the issue with all this is, first of all, we've been through two years of the coronavirus pandemic, which has taken up £400 billion of public money and completely blocked up Whitehall from doing anything else. And the second thing is the fact there's just not that much time left that my sense is the next election will be in probably the spring of 2024. So there's two and a bit years to really get this stuff moving and building infrastructure Britain takes a long time. And so even doing the small scale things between now and the next polling day is not going to be that easy. And then you've got the longer term stuff, you know, trying to solve our productivity problem is something we've been trying ever since the Second World War, trying to improve technical education. Again, for decades, we've tried to address these things and governments of left and right have tried all various schemes. None of them have particularly worked. And I think the big wage gamble Boris Johnson has made at this conference to not to keep migration low and to not ease visas of business being asking for is an attempt to try and fix that particular thing. So in terms of where the government wants to go to win back the red, to keep on the red was say, that's quite clear. Whether they can do it or not, particularly a prime minister who I think still has to prove his record actually delivering policy, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, and what I thought was quite interesting was that during the conference, David Willits, the Conservative peer, said that the meaning of levelling up might ultimately be decided at the Treasury and what Rishi Sunak is willing to fund. And, you know, you, you hear reports, don't you, about tensions between the PM and the Chancellor over how much is being willing to spend. I mean, do, what, what sense of that do you, do you get from sort of what you've been hearing at, at conference? Well, I think... Um... We've got the spending review, which will come out at the end of October. And the general sense around Whitehall is that uh, the public finances will be in a slightly better shape than we thought they were going to be post the pandemic. But fundamentally, Rishi Sunak and the Treasury, it's always their job to say no. That's what its role in Whitehall is. And 
I think it's going to be a big question of how much money there is because we've seen these various funds. I mentioned before the leveling up funds, the towns fund, where you can bid on small scale infrastructure projects, which MPs and mayors hope will fulfill that short term aim of leveling up. But in terms of that longer term stuff to try and deal with further education and skills, that is going to be a much sort of bigger challenge. Um, and at the moment, we'll have to just wait and see. The spending review isn't finalised. But, you know, this is the defining mission of the Johnson government now, that really whether the prime minister is re-elected or not is defined on whether he can deliver these projects and give people that palpable sense their lives are getting better. It doesn't have to all be done. I think you can go in 2024, just as Labour did in 2001, to say we've done some of the work but there's more to do. Give us another term. And it worked for Tony Blair then. And Boris Johnson will be hoping it will work for him now. Rachel, one of the things that sort of struck me during the Prime Minister's speech was that I think for a lot of voters, the sunny and optimistic tone that he was trying to strike uh, and, in, and in conference in general might seem a bit jarring, given the many challenges that the country is currently facing, that people across the North will probably be feeling sort of in their day-to-day lives, universal credit cuts and fuel shortages. What were your big takeaways from, from, from conference? Well, just going back to what some of Seb was talking about there, I mean, I think he's right to say sort of Boris Johnson has to be able to show that they've made some progress towards levelling up, even if that's even if the very concept of levelling up is not yet quite defined, but they'll have to show that people's lives have measurably improved. That whole idea is entirely dislocated from, as you say, a lot of the things that are actually happening. You know, you've got the £20 a week cut to universal credit, which has just come in now. You've got the highest tax burden since the war, you know, huge council tax hikes, national insurance tax hikes. And I think sort of, you know, it's going to be all very good having people having new town centres. But if you're dealing with areas that have had, you know, the highest levels of child poverty for, for, for decades, you've got to be able to, the people who live there, got to be able to have money to spend in their new town centres. So some of my takeaways from the Conservative Party conference was just that the party seems to be having like a bit of an identity crisis. You know, it's always been a, a low tax party. That's kind of their one of their central missions is to be like a low tax party. And I think I picked up quite a lot of discomfort among sort of backbench Tory MPs who felt that Boris Johnson's administration was kind of moving away from that ever so slightly. And there were, you know, there was uh, went to quite a few fringes where there were quite a few aired some criticism of, of of that new approach. And I think they just seem to be going down a, a, a road where they're going to talk much more about, you know, the culture wars. But the, there was also, again, just some Conservatives who were not entirely happy with with taking that kind of approach either. So it just seems to be a party having a little bit of a a little bit of a wobble, really, a little bit of a, an identity crisis. Yeah, and, and given that, I mean, do, do you get a sense of what the big political battlegrounds are going to be going going forward i mean obviously there's been the you know the war on woke hasn't there and which now seems to have been replaced by immigration and the benefits of controls or not controls on immigration as possible maybe one of the sort of dividing lines in politics both boris johnson's and keir starmer's speech but both felt like midterm speeches you know like they're both kind of slightly in in holding patterns and i don't know if it feels like a little bit of a phony war at the minute because a lot that's happening in the economy kind of is so unknown at the minute you know we don't know quite how long the supply chain crisis is going to rumble on for and what the public feeling about that is going to be you know are there going to be implications on how people view Brexit long term you know there's kind of a lot of unanswered questions and I think both leaders speeches kind of reflected that really. And just a quick fire one to, to finish off with Seb is confident we won't see an election until 2024 do you think it might come a bit early if there's a, an electoral advantage to the to the Conservatives? Well my boss Pippa Creamer seems to think that um, we're more, most likely to to 
to have an election in the autumn winter of 2023. I'm going to I'm going to stick with what my boss Pippa says. <laughs> Always a sensible approach. Well, that brings party conference to an end and there's plenty to mull over for our region's leaders in the north. So thank you so much to Rachel and Seb for joining me today. And now let's have a look at the challenges facing the North's town halls. So let's set the scene to talk about council finances in Leeds, where local democracy reporter Richard Beecham has been studying what's going on in the last few years. And Richard, a couple of weeks ago, you posted a very interesting Twitter thread about sort of setting out the the full extent of the cuts to Leeds City Council's finances and, you know, just how dramatic the axe has been since austerity. So, so tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a fairly dramatic scene once once you put it into the sort of context of the last ten years. So, long story short, then Leeds City Council's revenue budget for 2011-12, that financial year, uh, was set at 582 million pounds. Now, I put this into the Bank of England's inflation calculator and found that if this had been maintained just at the same levels and adjusted for inflation by 2020, then the budget was would have stood at around about £763 million. The council's actual revenue budget that year, i.e. last year, was £525 million, so meaning that it was about £238 million down on spending in previous on, on the previous decade in real terms. So pretty much a third of its spending power, or nearly a third of its spending power, disappeared in 10 years. So obviously this happened for lots of reasons, such as borrowing rates and the amounts of money the council's able to generate through through business and council tax and stuff like that. But the biggest change was in the council's revenue support grant. Now, what's the revenue support grant? Well, this is pretty much the general spending money from central government that is given to the council, which doesn't come from council tax or business rates. So the government chipped away at this year by year and and it went from about £254 million, so half of the council spending nearly, in 2010 to just £28 million last year. Now, this is before we even talk about COVID-19 and the the council's ruling Labour group. I mean, they call COVID-19, I, th- I think it was the biggest in-year hit to finances since the Second World War, which is quite dramatic. But I mean, if you look at the numbers, it is quite stark. Um, in 2021-22, that this current financial year, the council's lost uh, another eight. £87 million worth of spending power and it's thought that it's going to need another £126 million worth of cuts over the next three years and you know I mean we're talking huge numbers here and this is before we even take into account the increase in demand for adult and child social care services during that time populations increase we need more services from the council and it's important I think because as much of it as much as it's the job of people like me and you to report on how councils and local authorities are spending this money and to hold them to account you just can't get away from these numbers and it has to be seen in the context of how much councils get in the first place as well yeah absolutely and those numbers like you say are pretty dramatic sounding but what what does it mean for services on the ground that people in Leeds will be experiencing and using every day the council by law has to protect adult and child social care services so even though it, it, it can make savings here and there within those services it means that other things have to suffer now uh, if we just take this year alone as an example it's thought that there's going to be about 800 job losses in the council now obviously you know behind each of those numbers is someone's job someone's livelihood um, and it's 800 in just this year alone in addition to that in attempt to 
claw back more money, the council's also included a 5% rise in council tax. Now, the council tax one, I think, is quite interesting because it's been going up most years because the council will see its grants reducing and consequently it'll feel the need to, like I say, claw back money elsewhere. So if we take, again, 11-12 as a benchmark then council tax for a band D property. Band D is normally the types of property that are used to make comparisons in this. If we take the council's tax for a band D property that year, it was £1,123. Now, this eventually rose to £1,521 this year. That works out as an, an extra £33 a month, which, I mean, is no small amount if you're on a tight budget. And in terms of basic changes to services, I mean, it's led to all sorts of cost-cutting measures. I mean, I've, I've, I've got a small list of... Only, only a tiny fraction of them for this year here. I mean, there's it's going to scrap its subsidy for PCSO officers. There's going to be an increase in the fees to use bowling greens, reductions in grants to arts organisations, the scrapping of the Christmas lights, the scrapping of screening England matches in Millennium Square. You now have to pay for a breeze card. And even the grass on public land is going to be cut less often. The list goes on and on and on. But I think it just shows how the cuts can affect everything from the big things to the little things. I'm really interested in how this plays out in the council chamber from a party political point of view, because, I mean, imagine it's fairly obvious what the Labour leaders of Leeds City Council are saying. But in terms of the Conservatives on the council, like what, what's what's their view on the situation? Yeah, like you say, I mean, the, uh, the council's ruling Labour group, as you'd expect, has been banging the drum on this every time they put out a budget and every time there's any kind of debate on what the council's spending its money on. I mean, they claim that the cumulative impacts of the spending power that they've lost over the last decade is at about £2 billion overall, year by year. But arguably, like you say, I mean, this is where we probably need the most scrutiny from opposition parties to make sure what little money there is to spend is spent wisely. So just to take an example, one of the big bees in the bonnets of uh, opposition councillors, particularly the Conservative councillors, is the issue of Leeds 2023. Now, this is the cultural programme for Leeds in, well, 2023. Uh, the council set aside about £10 million to go towards cultural events in the coming year. They say that it'll help boost the city's profile and ultimately boost its economy and, and, and eventually will probably increase the amount that the council could take in rates and spend and stuff like that. When you look at this in the context of some of the other cuts that they're making, I mean, it has been quite difficult for some people to stomach. I mean, one example that I remember writing about quite recently that, that that went on and on was the council's uh, decision to close two elderly care homes this year Homely House in Rothwell and Richmond House in Carberley they say that it'll save about 1.5 million pounds but opposition councillors will quite understandably say that perhaps keeping open facilities like this is a bit more important than funding a programme of cultural events in the city. So thank you very much Richard so that's Richard Beecham, local democracy reporter for Leeds That's the situation facing Leeds, but if you look at councils across the north, it's a similar picture. The Manchester Evening News reports this week that town halls across Greater Manchester are facing a black hole in their finances, running to tens of millions of pounds. For example, Bolton, which in the last 12 months has had to axe more than 200 full-time roles, needs to save £37 million in the next two years to balance the books. Local leaders are anxiously awaiting the Chancellor's autumn budget, which they hope will give them greater clarity on how much money they can expect to receive from the government and what their tax raising powers will be. Each council's budget gap will be partially closed through council tax, business rates and the fees charged for certain services town halls provide. 
They will also be hoping for a further injection of government cash, while reserves can be used to help achieve the balanced budgets required by law. A report out this week by a think tank indicates that council tax may need to rise by up to 5% a year for the next three years to keep services running and pay for social care reforms, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So let's hear from the horse's mouth about exactly what our town halls are facing as our Westminster editor, Dan O'Donoghue, speaks to Newcastle City Council leader, Nick Forbes. For our listeners, can you just summarise what's changed for the council in budget terms in the last 10 years and perhaps where you believe things are going in the years ahead, especially as we come out of the pandemic? I guess you could say that there have been really two significant changes. The first is obviously the reductions in government grant over the last 10 years. So we've seen year on year on year reduction in government grant uh, from the council's revenue support grant settlement. Uh, which has meant year-on-year difficult decisions to take around the future of uh, local government services, transforming the organisation as best we can, but recognising that with a much smaller amount of money, you can do less as an organisation. That's the inevitable nature of it. At the same time as having to balance all of our statutory responsibilities, particularly around adults and children's social care and the growing demographic pressures uh, that the changing population represents for those. Uh, But the other thing that I think is changed is that psychologically it feels as though local government is less important as a result Uh, but people still look to their council and we saw this particularly in covid for advice and guidance for public health advice schools look to us for help when uh, government guidance wasn't clear and people expected the council just to be able to get on and do the job despite it being threadbare and I think that kind of psychological sense that not only have we been through a really tough decade, but it doesn't look as though the prospects for uh, financial stability are going to get any better in the future, I think fills quite a lot of leaders with a huge amount of concern. Later in the show, we'll be joined by the Tory deputy leader of Lancashire County Council. I understand that in his interview that he said local people in Lancashire haven't really noticed any cuts to spend and they haven't noticed the impact of those over the last 10 years or, or during COVID. I just wondered if that was the situation in the northeast. No, people have definitely noticed uh, the impact of cuts here uh, and partly because the way that the government uh, targeted the cuts, particularly in the coalition years, meant that areas with a lower tax base, which tend to be labour areas, big cities, uh, faced proportionately deeper cuts than other parts of the country. So our challenges were more acute and our decisions were more difficult. That's why we have 10 fewer libraries in Newcastle than we had 10 years ago. Uh, We have 14 fewer short start centres than we had 10 years ago. People have seen a real difference in terms of the council's daily response or lesser, less than daily response to local environmental concerns. People tend to think when they think about a council about the visible services but actually, it's the services that have affected vulnerable people, the invisible services, uh, where we've seen perhaps some of the more profound changes. So care packages limited, care packages scaled back, less support for unpaid carers, and sadly, having to reduce the amount of support that we are able to provide for people in real financial difficulty too. The changes might not always be visible to somebody in the street, although actually sometimes they are visible to people in the street, 
But actually, beneath that, the services, the invisible services that council provides, which are a lifeline for people, have really been stretched, I think, to the limits. I heard you talk a lot at Labour Conference, in particular about perhaps more fiscal devolution to local authorities or combined authorities. Do you think maybe this would be a way to, to address, I suppose, some of these deficits where, where you know you know on the ground what's needed and where you can target certain spending. I mean, could you just explain for our listeners kind of what that would mean and what that would look like? Firstly, I don't think it's a short-term answer to the acute financial pressure that councils are in. And the government half recognised this when they announced the new health and social care levy, which is going to be introduced from next April. But what they haven't done is confirmed how much of that £12 billion that's going to be raised nationally will come to local government. And my worry is that in the first few years, they're they're starting to say it's going to be about dealing with a backlog in the NHS. But from experience, once resources go into the NHS, it's very difficult to get them out again. And we know how important getting social care right is to the NHS, because otherwise, if social care falls down and fails, then people will just end up in the NHS and the NHS will be even more under pressure. And that's the most expensive bit of the health and social care system. So I think it's in everybody's interests that we have a decent settlement around social care to enable not just social care to to do well in the future, but also to keep the unsustainable pressure off the NHS. So I don't think fiscal devolution is an answer to that in the short term. That's a national government issue to address in the comprehensive spending review in the coming budget. But certainly longer term, there is a bit of a perception and an image that the North is reliant on handouts from the South, and that the South's tax take is redistributed to the North. And what I'd like to be able to do is start to turn that around. So we have a much stronger sense of our own value in terms of the taxes that we're able to raise here, and stronger accountability between the taxes raised here and how they're spent. The only tax where there's a local connection is council tax. And even then, the link is now really quite tenuous because of the scale of the pressure on social care budgets means that basically councils have to put council tax up by the cap every year in order to be able to balance that shortfall. That's basically a government instruction to us. So even council tax, which is seen by most people as a local tax, doesn't really get spent on local services. So I think a stronger sense of the taxes that people pay at a local level and how that's then spent by locally accountable politicians is a really important part of re-establishing that sense that we're more in control of our own destiny for the future. Talking about our own destiny, I mean, we've just come out of the Tory conference this week where there's been a lot of discussion around levelling up and uh, the Conservatives claiming to put more power back in the hands of local people. I mean, do you think this whole levelling up agenda is going to herald a new golden age for local authorities or (laughs) is it just all smoke and mirrors? Well, uh, I certainly don't think it's going to lead to a golden age for local authorities. Uh, because all of the mood music coming out of the Treasury at the moment is that councils uh, will really get a very flat cash settlement for the future. And that means that uh, really austerity isn't over for local government. We are going to face more difficult years ahead in terms of cuts. The issue about the levelling up agenda for me is it feels a bit like uh, you know, a few years ago, Northern Powerhouse was, was the buzzword that everybody was using. Despite the huge amount of rhetoric that was expressed around the Northern Powerhouse, actually, it's very difficult to point to anything that was tangible as a result of that branding. And I hope, if I say this in the spirit of constructive criticism, I hope if the government have learned anything from the Northern Powerhouse experience, it's that levelling up needs to be backed by a long-term sustained agenda uh, of investment and economic growth 
in the north, not just in the north, by the way, but it, particularly in the north, uh, around, I would argue, the net zero agenda and the opportunities that that has to create the next generation of jobs for us. And if the government doesn't really put its whole weight behind levelling up and just sees it as a particular fund that to allocate individual bits of capital money for particular projects around, then really it's a slogan without substance. I hope it's more than that. I hope it's going to be more than that. But yet at the moment, we don't actually have an indication of whether there is any substance behind that slogan. It'd be remiss of me not to ask your thoughts on the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United. I mean, it'll obviously probably mean a lot of investment for the club and the city, but we all know about the country's appalling human rights record. I just wondered where you kind of stood on this issue. Well, Newcastle United is incredibly important for Newcastle uh, in, two, for, in two ways. Firstly, it's something that affects the mood of the city. If the club does well, the city feels good. And uh, I don't think I know anywhere else in the country where the, the, the emotional health of the city is so entwined with the su- success on the pitch of the football club. But secondly, Newcastle United is our biggest, it's our city's biggest international brand. And that, I think, presents us an opportunity to think about the investment that could come alongside this. I don't want to brush the human rights issues under the carpet. So what I've done is I've asked the incoming owners to open a dialogue with fans so that fans feel that they have a route to express and raise those concerns in a way that feels constructive and that collectively we can make sure that the club's values and what the club is seeking to achieve align with the city's values around being a city of sanctuary and a city of peace. And that, I think, is a really exciting opportunity for us because there's no doubt that the new owners of the club don't just see the limits of their investment within the bounds of the club, I have no doubt they're going to want to talk to us about opportunities for investment in the city. And we therefore need to make sure that, that investment is in line with our values, our plan and our ambitions for the future. Nick Forbes, thanks very much. So that's the view from the North East. But to get another perspective, let's hear now from Alan Vincent, the Conservative Deputy Leader of Lancashire County Council. Now, Alan, would it be fair to say that you expect your council to be able to make the savings needed to balance the books in the coming years, but the impact of COVID will mean it might take a bit longer than previously expected? I think that's probably a fair assessment. Um, When we came into power four years ago, we had a a pretty significant deficit. We had a plan to recover from that deficit, uh, which we got over halfway through. Um, unfortunately, COVID then arrived, so that that plan is going ahead. But obviously, it's uh, COVID has impacted on it, and it will certainly impact, I think, on the ability of it to produce the savings we need within the time frame that we envisaged. Uh, so, yeah, it will. The plan has been slowed down a lot by COVID. To put it into sort of real life terms that people listening can understand, are there particular areas that you're spending more more on now or most on now, which you weren't, say, 10 years ago or five years ago? No, I, I think we've been spending less on, on various areas. It's, it's quite patchy in the sense that things that we spend money on normally, we've spent less money on, and things which we spend less money on, we've spent more money on. Um, so, for example, um, we would... We've had to pay more out for care at home so that people who aren't going into residential nursing homes have reduced the bill that we get 
because they're not going into residential nursing homes, but the bill for looking after them at home has gone up um, because there are more of them at home and because prices are rising and wages are rising in that sector. So uh, it's quite it's quite a complex picture. And obviously you've spoken about the pandemic and whenever the government is asked about local council spending, they always point to the various bits of emergency funding that they, they provided to local authorities like yours during the pandemic. I mean, so how vital were those funds to, you know, keep keep the wolf from the door, as it were? And is, it, is, is it a problem that they're just a, a one-off and not something that you'll get sort of recurring in the, in the longer term? Well, no, it's not a problem in that sense, because obviously um, the, the pandemic will end and we should go back to normal business and we're, get, we're, we're starting slowly to get back to normal business. So you can't expect government to continue those sort of funding streams. They were vast. Um, but what, what we did find was that it was crucial that we had the support from government. If we hadn't have had it, then uh, I'll, this area would have suffered far worse than it did. Um, and I think the job support schemes, the, the, the support that they had for keeping people in nursing homes and looking after people generally was critical. Uh, if we hadn't had that, there would have been a real mess. And given you know the background we've just been discussing, do, do you think it's likely that residents in Lancashire will have noticed any differences to the kinds of day-to-day services that they rely on because of you know the well the pandemic but also the the significant savings that you've had to make in in, in recent years due to due to austerity no no I don't think they will have noticed and, and I think certainly the we haven't cut much in by way of frontline services we haven't had much in the way of staff reductions uh, we've done it really by working smarter uh, and by using digital technology where uh, we wouldn't have used that in the past. So it's been a, it's been a smart way of working that's delivered most of the, the savings that we have managed to make. Uh, so I don't think people will have noticed that. Um, whether they'll notice it over the coming years, who knows, because it, it, the future is fairly uncertain in my view. And well, as you say, you in Lancashire, you've been working smarter but you know if, you, if i guess if you look at the picture across other local authorities they've had to make quite uh, you know cuts that residents really have noticed in various areas i mean how do you maybe you don't know what's going on elsewhere but how do you account for the fact that you know you've managed to lancashire has managed to get through the last few years relatively unscathed whereas other areas have not perhaps done quite quite so well we certainly haven't had any more money than anybody else we, we it's not a case of favouring us over any, more, any other area. Um, we've had the same sort of contribution from central government as everyone else has had. I think it's just how you, how you use the money. Everyone has difficult choices to make. Um, everyone has to decide how that money is applied. Um, and we've applied it perhaps better than most because our reserves have built up. We are in a better position financially than quite a lot of other areas are in. Um, there's no, there's no risk of us running to government and saying we're, we're, we're going to go bust bailers out. Um, but at the same time, we recognise that we're going to have some hard times ahead and that it will be difficult to balance the books over the next two or three years. But at this moment in time, we're, we're probably um, doing as well as most. I know local leaders like yourself are looking forward, or maybe that's the wrong word, you're, you're uh, eagerly awaiting Rishi Sunak's spending mm-hmm. review later this month and the, you know, the financial settlement for... For local authorities and he'll, he'll set out the spending plans for different departments i mean are you feeling anxious about that or fairly fairly relaxed no i, I think i think we're somewhere in between uh, i'm not i'm not losing sleep over it but by the same token we will have a funding because of the cost of adult social care 
in particular over the next couple of years. And I think that there will be difficulties ahead. And I am worried that the government will not fund the whole of the difference that we will have between what it costs now and what it will cost next year and the year after. I think that some of that difference will be funded by government, but I don't think it all will, is the sort of noises that we're hearing. Um, and if they don't fund it fully, the, the difference in price, then we will have to find that money from somewhere else. Um, fortunately, we have reserves. We've got reserves that will last us for the next four years or so. So we're in a reasonable position to cope with it. But obviously, if we don't get those reserves topped up, and keep, you can't keep using reserves uh, to make sure that you, you're, you're not going bust. Um, so we would have to have another plan. Um, but we've managed to do that every time we've been asked to do it. And I suppose we'd have to do it again. But um, I think times will be hard, definitely. Alan Vincent from Lancashire County Council, thank you very much for speaking to us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one. See you next week. The LGBTQ community is not just for pride, it's for life. From protests to parades, parties to politics, pride is all about visibility. The LGBTQ community is loud and proud, here and queer, after many years forced inside the closet. And we hope to hear from all voices from across all gender identities and sexualities and representatives of all backgrounds for a brand new podcast, The Outcrowd, with me, Joe Alley. This is a celebration of queer voices who fight to be heard against the insidious waves of homophobia and transphobia still experienced today. This is an education about the history and the culture of the LGBTQ community. And this is a podcast that is loud and proud here and queer, and most definitely out of the closet. Mm-hmm.